There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. The way I see it, that hybridization could have easily produced like a small mouth that didn't really fight or like a large mouth that wouldn't eat pretty much anything you dropped in front of it. Question number one, do you sell bait? No, we do not. We do not sell lawn chairs either. Guess who does? Walmart. But he's got it all tied together with a giant Colt 45 belt buckle. I am not talking about the Billy D. Williams Colt 45 malt liquor. We are talking about the pistol. Though I often opt for white sweatpants when I fish dries, unless it's after Labor Day. Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that's better than Netscape, but not quite as good as Ask Jeeves when it comes to answering your most burning fishing questions. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte. I was more, I was more uh, web crawler and Lycos. Web crawler. Web crawler. Those are... <laughs> They, that was my go-to source for for Cliff's notes and uh, yeah. Leisure Suit Larry game hacks back in the nineties. <laughs> where, as fun as this is to, to drop stupid references, where are we going, dude? Is this like the, are we theming this show Doom and slow download Ooh. speeds or something? Oh no, but that would be a fun challenge. I would take that on. <laughs> I don't want to do a Doom show. <laughs> Doom and Doom and Dogpile. The sound oh. effects alone, that grunting, it was just constant grunting and gunfire. <laughs> Um, no, but I'm actually, what I'm doing here is I'm riffing off something we dabbled with a while back. Remember that we did a one-off segment with Tom Rosenbauer called The Right Question. You remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I liked that one. I, I thought yeah. that was good. We toyed with actually making that a segment where yep. we, we asked people about dumb, we, had, we were going to like, the whole idea was that we would take smart people who get lots of questions that are not so smart and and ask them to explain how to formulate better or smarter questions. Right. The idea being, if you ask better questions, you get better answers. But we never really, like, we, we were never able to make it into a full segment, if I remember right. correctly. We thought right. it was a great idea, but we didn't have that many opportunities to pull it right. off. Right. And I, I still think it's a really good idea. It has merit. So just just for some fun today, I wanted to reframe it a bit and make it kind of personal. Because as, as many of you guys know, I hope most of you know, 
Miles and I are very much open doors, right? Like you DM us a question or email a question to the Ben email account. We answer, right? We love entertaining and telling good stories, but our job, uh, you know, has for a long time also been helping people catch more fish and have fun doing so. And uh, I mean, we also just love to talk fishing. Like punk music and fishing are really the only things I'm qualified to talk about. If we're not talking about one of those two things, I just kind of turn into a vegetable. Um, so, like, we genuinely enjoy answering fishing questions. Yeah, yeah. I'll say Joe's better on the DMs. I'm better on the email, depending Fair. on which route you want to take it. But uh, you're setting up a theme for the show, dude, and you're just telling people about this now, <laughs> like right now, who are listening to the show at this moment. So I don't exactly know how we're gonna, like, I don't. How are we gonna make an episode based around questions that we we haven't yet received? I'm I'm struggling. No, that's a valid point. But see, I thought I'd use this opportunity to address the two most common questions I get, and I'm sure okay. you get them or similar questions, and I want to mm-hmm. talk about them. And how you should rework them a little so we can help you, okay? Okay. God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me help you. All right, this is, this is fun. This is fun. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. And uh, I'm, cur- I'm curious to see. I, I, I'm guessing our questions will overlap, but let's see, let's see where you go. Me too. Okay, so most common question number one. Could you recommend a good fly outfit? And Lord knows I can recommend a good outfit for everything from bull reds to bluegills, right? It, it does, I will say, it gets trickier when dude says, where I'm fishing, it's mostly stocked trout, but there's also some huge carp. Occasionally we get some giant pike and there are loads of perch. But I, those details I can work around. Like I can, we'll figure that out. But the basic question, the initial question is, is always answered with another question every single time. And you know what it is. Yeah. How much? What's the budget? What do you guys? Yes. You can't just ask an open question like that without any spending parameters. There it is. There it is. So I think that's a good tip kind of when you're asking anyone to recommend anything about gear, like a recliner, Walkman. That's a bad (laughs) phone, fishing rod, whatever. (laughs) Budget is critical. And, and, you know, you, you and I both, we know about gear. Like we know about lots of fishing gear. We've had to be up on it as a yep. part of our jobs for a while. So like, it doesn't matter the price range. We fish the snazzy stuff. We fish the cheap stuff and we can, we can tell you which one you should get. Like, doesn't matter. I don't care if you're trolling or casting or whatever. We probably right. have some, some opinions, but damn it. We got, what do you, what do you, what do you got? <laughs> How much can you spend? Like if I needed say a good cranking rod, I would write dear Joe, can you recommend a crankbait rod that could pull <laughs> double duty say as a light swim bait rod and that will allow me to catch everything from big large mouth to schoolie stripers i'm looking to spend around 200 bucks because that's what i got see and i'd write back dear miles first excellent question thank you for including your budget i'd go with the 13 fishing envy black 2 kronkenstein Matter of fact, I recently mm-hmm. used mine to put the screws to a bunch of 10 to 12 pound stripers on the Delaware River, and it was fantastic. <laughs> he, he texted me photos the same day, just, just so everybody knows, because I wasn't. So that's true, fishing. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'd also say that because Bent is officially <laughs> brought to you by 13 Fishing, a fact about which we are very, very proud. We and are. like, okay, I know that's, this all sounds like a cheesy <laughs> plug, but it's actually valid. Joe's, Joe's not making that up about the stripers and, nope. and the Kronkenstein earning its keep this season. He's been using that thing a lot. I even used it a few times when I was out there with him. Anyway, 
We love 13 Rods and Reels. Please check them out at 13fishing.com. And now that we've covered that, what what's question number two? What's your what's your okay. second most okay. uh, fielded question that you wish were different? Okay. I get this a ton. Okay, I get this a ton. Me and my buds have two weeks off in September. We're planning a fishing trip. Where should we go? Or sometimes this ends with, if you could pick one place to go, where would it be? And of course, my answer is Vanuatu for Giant Trevallis, which isn't, it's like, it's not really a good answer for these questions most of the time. But like, once again, okay, budget is really important here too, but it goes, it goes far beyond that. Like for starters, where, where do you live? Where are you from? <laughs> not only, Yeah, because before you figure out what it's going to cost, you got to know how far you're going. Where? Yeah. I Yeah. No, I, I get this one. I get this one all the time, too. Like, help, help us out. Help us out a little. God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Are you driving? <laughs> are you flying? Are you like, do you want to stay in a swank lodge? Are you car camping are you backpacking are you like we're cool with jamming the whole crew of eight dudes into a super eight <laughs> motel do you uh, do you want to get a guide do you want to get a guide the whole time just the first day are you just straight diy like there there are so many elements of like pieces of information you could yeah. provide that would get you a better answer yeah and quite often i mean with, with stuff like this the first round of answers dictates the second it's like if you answered a we're driving then the next part of the choose your own adventure is, well, how far do you want to drive? You know, I yeah. always ask, do you want how many days off do you have? Exactly. Do you want quantity or quality? Is this a trophy hunt? Are you trying to fill coolers? Like, it's like, okay, you know, well, I want to catch stripers, but I'm going to recommend a different place if you want them on fly than if you just want to soak bait and drink beer and wait for a cow. So yep. this is what I'm, again, I'm always happy to help with this, but you can't just say I have two weeks off, man, send me somewhere. Can't it's not can't. I'm worried. I, I I feel like I feel like we're gonna come off as sounding snarky right now, and we are. I know. We, we, yeah. But we're being we're being snarky for the sake of entertainment because that's why people partially listen to this is to be entertained. But this really is all about asking good questions. Like yes, don't ask what setup should I buy or where should I go fish. Be specific. Like if you want a good answer, ask a good question. And. Yes. That goes for fishing questions. You could ask anywhere to anyone through your local tackle shop or you're with a guide or a fishing buddy who knows more than you. Don't shortcut it with some kind of broad generalization because you're too lazy to figure out the details of what you need to know. Think about it. Ask a detailed question. That's it. That's if, if you want to get a lot out of it, you have to put something into the crafting of the question. Yep. The more specific you are about what you want or what you want to do, the faster and easier that, that anybody can help you, whether it's us or someone else. And and we do want to help. Like, we enjoy that. We love being helpful when we can be. We really do. And, and I'll say that, like, we really try to stay on top of answering everything. And if you give me the information I need to help you, people have written me back and be like, oh, my God, dude, you just wrote me a novel. Like, yeah, because if I'm, if I'm into your question, <laughs> like, I'm a detail-oriented person. So, like, I will go all in. I'm more likely to avoid it when I have to do too much work to get to what you're really asking first. But we yeah. really do love helping everybody. Um, and um, you know who else loves to help you? Our friend Sammy Gennardo, owner of Gennardo & Sons Fly Shop in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. Trout season is in full swing. Hatches are popping off. You have questions. He's got answers, some of which he graciously supplied for this week's Regional Fishing Report. 
Buddy, how you doing? Sammy Gennato, Gennato and Sons Fly Shop, Jesus Christ, it's spring. Anything you want to be hatching is hatching right now, so stop calling me. Just go fish. Size 16, I don't care what it is, just put it out there, that's all you need to do. I've been getting a crap load of calls this week, I hung up on most of them. So, instead of a report, here's the five questions I'm just sick of hearing. Question number one, do you sell bait? No, we do not. We do not sell lawn chairs either. Guess who does? Walmart. Post up, tie the line to your toe, take a nap, call it a day, I don't care. See you later. Question number two, what color are they hitting on? Let me ask you a question. What color are your sweatpants? Gray. Question number three, what's the best time to go fishing? Couldn't tell you. I close in ten minutes. Question number four, where should I go fishing? Answer, under the power lines. You know you're there when your cell phone don't work. Question number five. Last and most least, I went where you told me to go. How come I didn't catch nothing? Maybe because you bought your flies off some toddler on Instagram who was turning them out like Slurpees at 7-Eleven. Maybe next time, asshole, support your local fly shop, i.e. Gennato and Sons Fly Shop, Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. Ask the right questions, you get the right answers. Spend the right amount of money, you might get a little bit of more. The sweatpants thing was on point, man. I just I gotta say, totally, that was, that was a good one. Yeah, totally, that's accurate. When in doubt, you tie on a gray body dry and call it done. Adams, Ad- you Adams. Co- you covered them. I love. Them. I live and die. I live and die by them. Though I often opt for white sweatpants when I fish dries, <laughs> unless it's after Labor Day, oh, then you can't yeah. wear them anymore. <laughs> hard, hard to get the fish slime off of sweatpants, especially the white ones. Just saying. yeah, yeah. Think about think about your wardrobe choice. Anyway, speaking <laughs> of sweatpants. Uh, which I don't fish in. They've been worn a time or two by people who wound up featured on our awkward moments in angling segment. We oh, have, yeah. We've seen some sweaty sweatpants. Oh, yeah. Some soiled sweatpants. We've seen a lot, but not this week. No, no, no. Very different. The dude in this photo that we're roasting or perhaps exalting went head-to-toe crisp denim. Crisp. This dude, head-to-toe. This dude is either awkward or... Just straight baller. And we're going to let you decide for yourself, but I know which way I'm leaning. Why don't you take a picture of the last longer? <laughs> this week's Awkward Moments in Angling submission comes to us from listener Ray Zabrowski. However, it is not, it is not Ray Zabrowski in the photo, right? Nope. In this photo is his bud, Skylar Hagen. And just very quickly, this leads to it's, it's too good of a spot to not drop an obligatory PSA. Remember, we can't use photos of your friends and relatives unless they give you permission to send them to us. And in this yes. case, Skylar gave Ray his blessing. And thank goodness, thank because goodness. this photo is both rad and like a total mind bender. And we love it. It, <laughs> it, took, us, it took us some time to figure this one out, which are our favorite ones, right? The ones that you get yes. right off the bat. They're just not as interesting. When we first saw it, Joe and I both assumed it was an old photo, like something yep. taken in the, the mid-80s range. Yep. And I'll say if it had been, it would still qualify because it's great. Totally. Totally. But the like the more you look at it, the photo quality just didn't seem right. It didn't seem like an 80s era printed photograph that had been digitized. It, it just it seemed a little too good. It it looks like an 80s era image, judging by 
like everything that's in it, like all the, the the subject matter. But but if you really dig in, it's clearly a newer digital photo. And and then we eventually figured out that it was taken in 2019. And so we just we had to go with it. We had to get yep. the full story. Yep, yep. So we're going to dive right in here, okay? And maybe, listen, maybe grab a notepad so you can keep track of all the elements <laughs> we're about to rattle off that make Skylar f- awesome, okay? It's a lot of elements. So this this shot was taken in the dark. It's taken at night, lit by a flash, which, again, at, at quick glance, somehow managed to, like, nearly replicate that 80s photo graininess, okay? Mm-hmm. That's what so, threw us off. Yeah, exactly. So he's showing off a largemouth bass, which maybe weighs two pounds. And that's enough. That's it about the fish. We, yep. we need not say anything else about the fish, okay? But he's got his spinning rod in his left hand, and the bass is dangling from the line that he's holding up in his right hand. And it's got a big old black jitterbug hanging out of its mouth. Old school. Mm-hmm. And right there, nighttime jitterbugging, Skylar is my people. Not many of us out there doing that. And it's not just, but, I, gotta, I gotta say, it's not just any jitterbug, but a jointed jitterbug. Uh-huh. Dude uh-huh. knows what's up. Like extra yep. extra points for the the old school jointed jitterbug. He's also wearing a full Canadian tuxedo. <laughs> the whole deal. And he's got it's, he's got he's got the, the like the Wrangler style jeans. You yep. know the ones they're snug, but they're broken in cowboy snug, not like hipster yeah, like, skinny yeah. jeans snug. That there's a there's right. a, a definite difference between those two fits. Uh, yep. And he's up top, when you move up from the jeans up top, he's got a much lighter stonewashed jean jacket that that has also clearly been well worn and and just, just fits him right. It's just it's yeah. just there. It's, it's a thing of beauty, of, it's really. Part it's part of him. Yeah. It's an yes. extension of his body. <laughs> but what ties this look together, what sets this apart, because you know, Canadian tuxedo is good. Some people wear it better than others. This dude wears it exceptionally well. But he's got it all tied together with a giant Colt 45 belt buckle. And so we are all on the same page. I am not talking about the Billy D. Williams Colt 45 malt liquor. No, we are talking about the pistol, the Colt 45. Yeah, just big old pistol right there. It's it's, it's great. Okay, now moving moving up the torso, look closely at the front pocket of that badass jean jacket, and you'll see a freaking box of black and milds protruding mm-hmm. out ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, I just got to throw a shout real quick. My father's favorite fishing smokes, for the record, the black and milds. Oh, were they? they oh, were. that's cool. Yep. That's cool. I was more of a backwoods guy. but He liked those two. Those were the two options. Yeah, yeah it's been a while, but both good. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving up to Skylar's face, okay? You, you just can't miss how it's framed by what appear to be a pair of vintage 80s glasses, okay? And the best way I can describe them, you'll know what I mean. It's like they're aviator-shaped, but they have really thick frames. And these are, are glasses glasses, not yeah. sunglasses, right? And like, my, I swear my grandpa had those glasses, glasses just like that when I was a little kid. And he'd keep them in one of those glasses protectors that mm-hmm. like, you'd stick in your front pocket, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're like a much more like masculine version of of glasses Dustin Hoffman wore in, in Tootsie. Um, and also, when I look at at Skyler's face, um, a particular actor comes to mind, and I want to see how good you are, okay? Because we're gonna we're gonna dig deep here. To me, what I see right away is Billy Zabka. Do you know who Billy Zabka is? Oh, no, I have no idea. So y- you don't know him by name, right? But Billy Zabka is the actor that played Johnny in The Karate Kid. 
Okay, because that's I, I when you said that I was like I was thinking <laughs> it looks like Cobra Kai Johnny. I don't know the actor's name, but that's Boom. exactly who so it looks see, like. So see, you didn't yes. you didn't know you didn't know his name, but Cobra Kai Johnny also in uh, just one of the guys, one of my favorite '80s actors. Also very, a great uh, great movie. Very, yeah, just one of the guys. Good. Yeah. One. Yeah. So yeah, I, I when I I was like, oh, it looks like Johnny. It does. It does. Uh, <laughs> that paints it. I mean, you you can see. I think you guys are getting getting a pretty good image of what we're talking about. But best of all. On top of Skyler's uh, shaggy blonde mop, he's got this trucker hat that I've definitely <laughs> never seen before. And it's hard to make out in the photo, but it was it was in the email, and it says, I'd rather be a roper than a doper. I want and the hat. I, want I don't know where that... We, did, we couldn't figure out where the phrase originated, but it is included in the lyrics of Ray Willie Hubbard's Up Against the Wall Redneck Mother. I, I'm going to say for the record, I have plenty of friends who can prove <laughs> that the two are not mutually exclusive, but that's another story. Anyway, uh, what's going on here? What uh, is dude, going a, on a, with Skylar? Is this is this a costume? Is this like, or is this dude just that unique? Is he that much himself? Well, according to Ray, this is just Skylar. Like, this is this just is, Skylar being is Skylar. Is. Ray yep. wrote to us and said, Skylar works for John Deere drives classic cars, and listens to hair metal loud. He gave me permission to send this photo. I asked if there were any notable points of interest from the night it was taken. He said, quote, we just listened to a bunch of rat and kicks and drank a lot of old style, caught a couple fish, end quote. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? It's like a fascinating <laughs> yes. guy. Yes. He belongs in the Outsiders or something. I, know. I can't. I can't quite place it, but you dug even deeper on the dude. Of course I did. Of course I did. I just just yep. for shits, I googled Skyler and found a little bit of info uh, about him on the website of the University of Wisconsin Madison's College of Engineering. Apparently, he won a fairly prestigious award in grad school. Here are a few highlights. Major award, yeah, major award. <laughs> he Skyler completed his master's degree in mechanical engineering in 2016. His research was aimed at developing a compact system that can transfer electrical energy wirelessly across a rotating air gap between a stationary power source and a rotating electrical load. Totally got that. I'm sure you did too. He's a volunteer <laughs> yep. firefighter with two departments. He's the president of the UW-Madison's Ham Radio Club, and his hobbies include <laughs> restoring antique electronics and ice fishing. Oh, my God. He's, he's just so American. I hate, I hate to even call this photo awkward anymore, dude. Like, just for this I know. week. I want to change the name of the segment to "Photos of Our Heroes." Yep, because yep, I yep. It's it's like it's very perplexing, but I love it. I love Skylar. <laughs> I love all the things. Ray, thank you for sending this. Skylar, don't ever change. Okay, you just keep cranking the rat, chugging old style, and designing technology that will better our society. Okay? Yes, yes. If you guys, God bless if you, you guys. Sir. Have <laughs> God bless you. If you guys uh, have any awkward fishing photos to share that maybe you'd like uh, for us to consider roasting or celebrating. I feel like we've opened a new chapter here. We're, we've yep. celebrated more than roasted this time. Please send them to bent at the mediator.com. I want to party with Skylar, dude. 
The fact nope. that he is that he is rocking this look, that he has this steez, to use one of your favorite <laughs> words, but is like a super smart dude, not some country bumpkin. It just it just he it makes him such a badass. He's badass. Who the hell are you? I'm the guy who's gonna put a boot up your ass if you don't tell me where Shelly is. Hey, Skyler. You know this guy? He's my boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a huge difference between hipsters that like paid top dollar for a tire yep. that in Soho that like the, so it feels shabby <laughs> chic, and and the dude who wears a Colt forty five belt buckle that he got from his grandfather. We didn't cover that, but it, it's a hand me down from his grandfather and smokes black and cool. mild. Yeah. Yeah, actually wow. hand me down from his grandfather. And smokes black and miles while redesigning electronics for his tractor. Get out of here. Yep. Yep. Different, <laughs> different world. Just anyway, go. Just get out of here. Yeah, get out of here. I may not know shit about tractors or any other motorized vehicles or devices. I admit that. But I am a force to reckon with when it comes to winning the championship belt buckle in the weekly fish competition we call Fish News. Fish News. That escalated quickly. So here's a super fun shout out to kick things off. Um, a lot of you have been reaching out, asking us who the hell won the big B-side fishing giveaway. You know, the one where you got every single 13 rod and reel I used in season one of the show. And we apologize for that announcement taking so long, but please understand that Miles and I are not the ones that like stick our hands in the baseball cap <laughs> and, and pull out the name on a tiny folded piece of paper. That's not our job. I mean, nope. I, honestly, I, at least I assume that's how it's done by whoever does it. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that it's not like computer-generated <laughs> algorithmic. I'm certain there's a hat and folded paper, for sure. Yeah. You got an intern yeah. writing all the names down, I think. <laughs> exactly. The, the truth is that all that stuff, the contest, the giveaways, that, that's way above our heads. That's, that's handled elsewhere. Other departments, I think. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, the truth is it takes a while for us to find out who wins these things. Uh, but... Just like we were all hoping, like we said we were hoping, a bent yes. listener brought home the sweet, sweet taste of victory. Yes, he so, did. Huge <laughs> congratulations go out to Dylan Antilus, Antilus, something like that. And and not only am I happy that this dude won because he's a listener, uh, his backstory and the way that this is all coming together, it, it could not be more timely or appropriate considering what we were talking about in, in last week's episode of the show. Yeah, right. So last week's show was fly-focused, but Miles and I both made the point that it's okay to take spinning gear when you fly fish. Yeah. That's okay. You're not yeah. going to get in trouble. We do it all the time. Uh, but the real theme of that episode was to uh, assuage any trepidation conventional anglers might have about getting into fly fishing, right? And then along comes Dylan, and when Dylan hit me up upon hearing the news that he won, he was like, yeah, I'm a hardcore fly guy, but wouldn't you know it, I was recently thinking about buying some conventional gear, so the timing couldn't be Yeah, better. which he should do. <laughs> yeah. Because it's all about being a well-rounded right. angler. And and Dylan, Dylan was saying that he hasn't owned a spinning rod or a conventional rod of any kind in like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Some of it's backstock, but he's already gotten his, his, his hands on some of that 13 gear. And so yeah. just the other day... He was out fishing on a buddy's canoe, and he wanted to throw boogle bugs with his fly rod, but it was blowing, I don't know, 30 or something. It was too windy. So <laughs> he just happened to have all this new conventional gear. He busted that out, threw on a hula popper, and started trashing largemouths, which is exactly what we're talking about. And there you go. That's the that's the the real-life live version of our PSA right there. That story defines 
bent, yep. right? Like that's our whole our whole shtick. It's just fishing, man. It's all good, no matter how you catch them. So that's perfect. Yes, and and congratulations again, Dylan. Send us some photos. Uh, we want to see what you're getting. And now I think it's time we should we should move on with with our contest, our own contest, our weekly contest. We should remember, Joe and I do not know <laughs> which news stories the other guys bring to the table. And at the end of all of this, our audio engineer Phil, the deacon of our digital water world, will pass judgment <laughs> upon both of us. He will. He will. I believe it's my lead off this week. Correct. You're you're up, buddy. What do you got? Okay. All right. So here we go. Uh, I first caught wind of this story on Wired to Fish, but uh, it's made the rounds since, including uh, right over there to, to ForTheWind.com, which we all know is one of my favorite <laughs> news sources. It okay? is, and I hope this is the story that I think it is. It, it is, because we can't not, right? Um, so that's where I'm pulling from, ForTheWind.com. Headline of this one is, Texas Fisherman's Mean Mouth Bass is a world record. Mean Mouth Bass, you say? What is that? Well, here's how undialed I am in the bass world. I'd never heard the term before this, but it is a true hybrid yeah. between a smallmouth bass and a largemouth bass. I I don't know about you. I never knew such a thing existed. Like, I'd never heard the term. Um, and I certainly didn't know that this occurred enough to have a name like Mean Mouth. But more more on that later. We'll do some Mean Mouth is that, history Is that right? I'm too. sorry. I, you've already obviously researched this. I thought it was a hybrid with a spot and a small mouth. But uh, I could be wrong about that. Apparently, I, this is your story, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to mess you up. I, no, I, I, I admit so that I I'm think, wrong if I'm wrong. So I think a Mean Mouth, it works both ways. You can have a hybrid between a small mouth and a spot, but there's no spots in the lake where the gent in this story is fishing, there's small mouths and large mouths. So oh. as I understand it, it works both ways. Okay. Right? If I'm wrong about that, I Are apologize. Are they both mean mouths? Oh, some of you out there, I know there's a bass head out there who's like tearing his or her hair out. Write us and tell yeah, and that's me. Fine. Tell us write, what we're it, write us up. and let us know, right? Yeah. Okay, because I'm just, I, I, look, all I have to go on here is what's on For the Wind, which is not much. <laughs> Fair enough. Continue. Don't ask me questions that the Smithsonian <laughs> should answer or something, okay? It's just on what do you For the Wind. from me? All right? <laughs> anyway, so here's what happened. Wyatt Frankens was fishing the O.H. Ivy Reservoir in Texas. This is way back in March when he hooked this seven-pound, nine-ounce fish. Uh, and for those of you curious, all you bass heads, it ate a mega bass swim bait. And upon mm. landing the fish, Frankens was certain that what he had was a new lake record smallmouth. And that's what prompted him to have the fish weighed. And according to the story... Um, while it was being weighed, some onlookers at wherever this was, tackle shop or I, who knows, uh, suggested that it might be a hybrid. So Frankens sent scale samples into Texas Parks and Wildlife, and wouldn't you know it, it's a hybrid. Now, this is making bigger news recently because Frankens just got final certification from the IGFA that it is, in fact, the world record mean mouth bass. So it's state record, lake record, and World record. Damn. Right now, if you, now looking at right, yeah, it's pretty. It's cool. So now looking at the photo, if I caught that, I'd have called it a pure smallmouth all day. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering what these things look like. And other than, to my eye at least, like some slight largemouth style patterning on the flanks, if I caught that, it probably wouldn't have crossed my mind. It, it, it looks way more smallmouth to me. But interestingly, so here's a little history. The term mean mouth. It's been around. It was coined in the 1960s 
when Dr. William Childers and his colleagues at the Illinois Natural History Survey began studies on sunfish family hybrids. And listen to this, right? For the win, pulled a quote from In Fisherman from an old story, and here's what it says. The researchers noted that different black bass species didn't hybridize when stocked in ponds with members of another species, i.e. all males of one species with all females of another. But fertilizing largemouth eggs with smallmouth sperm produced viable offspring that reproduced among themselves and with both parental species, right? It gets better. The term meanmouth bass was born when Childers observed a school of largemouth smallmouths attacking a female swimmer. And there's a quote that says, the bass leaped from what? the water and struck her on the head and chest and drove her from the pond. On another occasion, he watched meanmouths attack a dog that ventured what? into shallow water. Yeah, I'm, this is from an old in fisherman story. This is what they're saying about the mean mouths. So how have if I that's never all, heard about this? This is amazing. Exactly, man. Like I've never heard of any of this, right? So just based on that, I'm very in on mean mouth bass. And I was trying <laughs> to find info on whether there's a place where they occur, you know, more frequently. But I, I kind of drew a blank there. It seems like the south and southeast might have more, but it's it's still pretty rare. And again. Frankly, all the pictures I've seen, uh, you know, I did the, the Google image search. They all look like a smallie to me. You know, like I yeah. may have caught 20 already. Who knows? I think the variance is so subtle in most cases that it would slip by most people. Um, I did see a few that had like a belly so huge. They just looked more mm -hmm. large mouth shape. But for the most part, I think it's a it's a very tricky ID. Um, but hey, like, look, they sound vicious. I have one quick ID question that you may or may not know. Um one of the ways to tell the difference between those two is, is is the dorsal fin, right? And and whether they have a shallow or a deep notch in that dorsal uh -huh. fin. Where's where's the mean mouth in the, in the, the dorsal notching? I don't know, Miles. I'll have to get back to you on <laughs> sorry, that. I'm sorry. That's a valid the, question. Why are you doing this to me? It is a valid question, but why are you doing this to me? Okay. Because <laughs> I'm curious. You think, you think for the win went into that much detail? Okay. I, 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 I don't know. I will follow up on that. I feel I feel small right now. <laughs> I'm not um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do your research, Sermelli. I know. Did you like I, all of a sudden I'm in like, you know, freshman bio in college again? Like, did you read the thing <laughs> did you that you do were the supposed to? And I'm like, like, no, I didn't actually, okay? I was playing guitars and drinking Slurpees. Son of a bitch. Uh, but anyway, look, they sound vicious and they sound cool, uh, which is great because that uh, the way I see it, that hybridization could have easily produced like a small mouth that didn't really fight or like a large mouth that wouldn't eat pretty much anything you dropped in front of it. So it just, it sounds like a win all around. Yeah. I'm I'm all in. I, I want to know more about the mean mouths. I, I have burning questions that uh, that Joe clearly can't answer. So I can't. hopefully, hopefully <laughs> someone out there, hopefully someone out there will follow up. Uh, I this this there is no clear connection between mean mouth and what I want to talk about first. I got to say I'm I will say okay. that my stories are thematic in that. Uh, here's what I'll say. I'm going very different from you because I can hardly think of anything more American. Than a mean mouth bass, like that's pretty that just American. Feels, that just feels so American. Like that should to me. be our national fish, not it the should. large mouth. Yeah, it absolutely should. And and the transition I have into what I'm gonna talk about is that I'm going the opposite direction. I'm not going American at all in any of the stories Whoa. I'm covering. I'm I'm going I'm going far afield. So if you know anything about the Netherlands, you you probably know or you hopefully know that they're geniuses when it comes to managing water. 
a full third of that country's landmass sits below sea level. And, okay. and two thirds of it is floodplain. So the Dutch have been actively working on ways to reclaim land and mitigate floods since the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Part of that, part of that water management strategy is, is the use and maintenance of canals and dams and locks, right? Cause Amsterdam is super famous for all of its canals, but it's not the sure. only city in the country that's got water running all through it. That's, that's kind of everywhere. And yeah. nearby Utrecht's canals are just as impressive. And, and though man-made have served to connect multiple river systems for thousands of years. And generally all these canals are, are, are thought of in, in pretty anthropocentric ways. They're like tools that people mm-hmm. use to keep water in check and, and, and facilitate boat passage. But yeah. though they're man-made and urban, they are functioning aquatic ecosystems. Sure. Right. So during the summer months, the locks get opened regularly because of all the boat traffic. And when they do, it's not just boats, but there are also fish that are taking advantage of, of, of passing through. But during the winter, with few boats moving, the locks can stay closed for extended periods of time. Now, last year, a Dutch ecologist was working on a project on the Utrecht canals and, and noticed high concentrations of fish stacking up at one particular lock. And the fish were like waiting. They're like, okay, when we, when is this going to open? When we can pass through, not knowing that it wasn't going to happen. Like they're going to be there for a while. And as a result, the fish were getting exhausted and then they were getting easily picked off by birds who were figuring out easy meals. Right. Yeah. So this ecologist explained the situation to the, the lock manager who was responsible for that lock. And the guy said, well, I want to open the door for the fish. For me, it's no problem. I live nearby, but I have to know when exactly those fish are there so I know when I have to open the door. So the ecologist partnered with the local water board to come up with a solution. They installed an underwater camera at the lock and set up a website to live stream the camera feed. Their hope, they were hoping that a few locals would check the live stream from time to time. And if they saw fish waiting at the lock, they'd click a button which they called a doorbell that would alert the lock manager. So we could go and open it up. <laughs> so that's their opening within two weeks, 735,000 people from all over the world had visited mm-hmm. the live stream and the and doorbell that guy was upset. <laughs> the doorbell had been <laughs> rung 32,000 times. <laughs> and I'm just, that dude had to immediately regret his decision to participate in this, right? Like, yeah, all of a sudden he's the sole monitor. He's the sole monitor of the live stream cam. He's like, I got it. I got it. I got it. I'll look. I'll look. Okay. I, I get annoyed when my phone dings at me more than like four times a day. This uh-huh. guy was getting pinged over 2,000 <laughs> times a day from strangers all over the world. Like, hey, dude, some fish want to get in. Hey, dude. Hey, dude, go open. That would be so awful. Um, and so pretty quickly, like, they, they, they just switched over to a system where he would open the locks at regular intervals every day and got rid of the, the doorbell bugging him. And you could look at the story and think, what a bunch of idiots, right? Like, they could have just... They could have just done that in the first place. Just had the guy open up the locks three times a day and, and problem solved. Instead, yeah. they wasted all this time and then annoyed the hell out of him for no good reason. But I'm guessing that this worked out far better than the ecologist could have ever hoped, right? If he had just quietly struck a deal with the lock manager to open the gates a few times a day and yeah. let the fish through, the problem would be solved for those fish at that spot 
in that one canal, but that's it. And instead, he created a system that allowed people from all over the world to interact with the fish that he cares about in these Dutch canals, right? All these people are now feeling like they're personally helping these fish get past a barrier. And in doing that, he's he's raised a bunch of awareness, not just about the aquatic ecology of urban Dutch waterways, but urban waterways everywhere. And that's a huge win, right? Additionally, the camera allowed him to collect data on the specific fish species moving through the canal and confirm ask, yeah. that it's an important yeah. migration route, right? The camera's captured various different species, including endangered European eels that were using the canals as part of their catadromous spotting ah, rights. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So with, with, with the summer boating season full swing, the locks are now opening regularly and the doorbell has been shut down. But the Utrecht municipality has confirmed that it will be back in operation next winter, but hopefully not actually pinging that poor, poor lock manager anymore. I'm thinking about my doorbell when you're going to ring it, when you're going to ring it. I'll tell you what, though, man. I, I am not at all surprised by those numbers um, because – like just as one example, and, and you know this happens all over the country, but like the Fairmount Dam in Philadelphia on the Schuylkill, they had a fish cam in their fish ladder. Yeah. And I would look at it every day and not for a minute, like 99.9% .9 of the time there would be nothing. You'd just be looking at water and bubbles. Yep. And I would sit there for 20 minutes and stare at it. Like waiting for what? I don't know. They had all their archived greatest moments. Like you go to the archive, it was still, it's like, Ooh, a carp. And it's like, Oh my God, a striped bass. But like, I never saw any of that shit, but I would still watch it. There's what? There's nest cams. Like watch oh, the, the nest cams are nest. huge. It's like, he's doing nothing. Yeah. And then, um, like the one thing that we used to use a lot still do, uh, back in my surf fishing days, they had all the surf cams set up, which were, were more for surfers. I mean, they were right. on surfing websites, yeah. but I mean, it came in really handy when you're that far away and you want to look at the, at the surf, but like, I, you don't watch it for 30 seconds and go, okay. Like you sit there and you're just watching waves break on the computer for 30 minutes. Like, what am I looking for? So I'm, I'm really not at all surprised by those numbers. People just love that. Like live, live. They love it. Stuff. Yeah. I should just like set one up in my yard. I'd get a million hits. It's like, look at Joe's yard 24 seven. Like, you could be anything. People, somebody will watch it. But this takes it to another level because they had a chance to actually engage, right? They could, yeah. they could push a button and make something happen with those fish on yeah. the other side of the world. Like, you want to talk yeah. about people, people are not that different from rats just pushing the button for the cheese. Like, they want that immediate feedback. <laughs> and when you get it, like, I, I totally understand why it blew up. I get well, the it. Only thing that would, the only thing that would have been better and funnier is imagine if they hardwired it so when you hit it, the lock just opened. Like, all day long, the lock just be like, <laughs> it, it would have been broken in 20 minutes. Yeah, you would just you would have just killed the entire lock. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. 
The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Really struggling on a transition here. <laughs> Don't have one. Uh, I was stretching there to try, uh, but that's okay. I'm going to go back domestic, and we're going to go to uh, Florida for what I'm going to say is some fairly significant news out of Florida. Uh, it appears that the three-decade ban on harvesting Goliath grouper is closer than it's ever been to being lifted. Okay? Oh, that's, that's big That's news. actually it's fairly significant, right? So this story comes from FloridaPhoenix.com and was written by Craig Pittman. And for those unaware, right, to kill or not kill Goliath grouper is a huge debate in Florida. It's been a flashpoint for many, many years. And 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 to fully understand what's happening, you just need like a wee hint of backstory. And I'm, I'm sure most of you know what a Goliath grouper is. You've seen the TikTok videos of people catching... <laughs> 800 pounders off the dock at the public ramp with a 50 wide or hand lining them with ropes offshore and so forth. Um, and presently, uh, I believe you are free and clear to target Goliaths. No problem there, but they cannot be brought into the boat. So they're, mm-hmm. they're still pretty protected. Now, uh, Pittman accurately notes that Goliaths tend to post up in an area and call it home. And that could be a wreck offshore or a bridge, whatever. But his point is that they're home bodies. So like they're kind of easy to find because they don't really leave. Like once you know that Goliaths are here or there, they're, they're pretty much going to be there all the time. And uh, divers will tell you, so will fishermen, I guess, that they're also pretty curious, that they're just genuinely curious fish. Some people say they're they're gentle giants. They're not these like big aggressive monsters, but they, they check stuff out. Um, and all of that contributes to why they were nearly decimated by the mid-1980s, right? Because they were easy to catch um, and even easier to shoot underwater. Guys would use a powerhead on a spear gun. And for for many decades, people sold them to fish markets and restaurants and such. So in 1990, the ban on killing them went into effect. Thing is, according to Pittman, right, there was really no accurate count 
of how many Goliaths remained when that ban went into effect, nor is there really a, a solid count of how many there are now. So the, the notion that they, they've rebounded substantially enough to allow harvest is really based, you know, basically on what anglers and, and divers are seeing. It's just like, yeah, there's a, a lot more of them out there, but nobody's really out there counting or studying those numbers specifically. Um, but generally speaking, wildlife officials are saying the comeback is a huge win, populations are thriving, and all is well. So what's happening is you've got environmentalists and, and folks tied to like the eco tour diving industry that need goliaths uh, for clients to look at when they're down there diving. They're saying, hey, you know, these fish are doing really, really good. Let's keep it up. And then you have a large amount of Florida anglers saying, hey, there's too many of these things. Can we please start killing them again? Right. So here's a, here's a quote from the story uh, that, that sort of gives you a little bit more detail. Pittman writes, there were calls to end the Goliath group refishing ban in 2001, 2011, and again in 2018. That's because some people don't appreciate Goliath groupers the way those echo tour divers do. Instead of cute, they use words like lazy and irritating. Angler, this, is a, this is a quote that he used here. Anglers fishing for snook, snappers, cobia, and other species routinely tell of how they were reeling in their catch to the surface when a Volkswagen-sized Goliath grouper grabbed their fish and snapped their line. The South Florida Sun Sentinel reported in 2001. Pittman says the hardest push to lift the ban came three years ago, and it produced the biggest push back. When word spread that the Wildlife Agency was considering letting anglers catch and keep 100 Goliath groupers, some 56,000 people signed petitions against it. But now, it appears, uh, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission Chairman Rodney Barreto is giving the angling groups what they want. And he says in the story, I think the time has come, and I think we should look at where we've come in 30 years with this fishery. Believe it or not, it's another great conservation story. It really is. We should be applauding ourselves. So the commissioners voted six to one to tell their staff to come back in October, this October, with a formal proposal for what they called a limited harvest. And what I gather is that if it passes, you'd have to enter a lottery and essentially draw a uh, Goliath tag, and there would only be 100 tags given out. The 100 is still what's on the table. So I don't know. I kind of have mixed feeling about it because for starters, I don't know. I'm not convinced killing 100 Goliaths would do that much damage. Again, nobody really knows the numbers, but based on anecdotal evidence and videos alone, it seems like there are uh, a lot of Goliaths. And if you were to go full on open season or something, right, like one fish per day or whatever it may be, then I get it. But I, I really don't think this will be that impactful. But second, I don't know, unless you're selling the meat, I also can't really understand why you'd want a 300-plus-pound grouper, like that much meat. Personally, I would much rather catch smaller grouper species or snappers down there than, uh, you know, take a 500-pound goliath, especially considering, I mean, it is, how easy they can be to find and hook. You know, that's true. Like, I would, I would almost feel guilty. And, and final thought, uh, you know, about people being upset about a goliath occasionally taking your yellowtail snapper off, I don't know, like, like, like deal with it. Like it's, it's, to me, it's like, that's nature, man. Like I've had it happen. It's a bummer, right? <laughs> but they live down there. Sorry. Like that's just, I don't, I've had it happen. It doesn't mean I want to go shoot the Goliath with a 357 over it. You know, I'd argue that sharks take just as much, if not more uh, fish off the line than, than Goliath. So yeah. I, I sort of see both sides here, but it's interesting nonetheless, because this, this ban has held for so long. And again, this is not the first time it's come real close, you know? 
I mean, and the reason the band has held so long and why this is such a deal is, is megafauna, right? Like yeah. big things, people like big things and we exactly. care about big things. And, and I, yep. I, not that I don't, I think Goliath Cooper, super interesting. The, and I agree with just about everything you said. The the other piece, though, that I feel like is missing from this is it has to be studied. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna make a management decision, I don't think mm-hmm. it should be based on anecdotal evidence of divers and fishermen be like, now ah, there's a lot more. That that to me, I think it's probably accurate, but I feel right. like this should be based on some kind of actual evidence and data. That's yeah. that's the piece for me that's missing here. I don't think a hundred, like if, if it's really just a hundred tags, that's I, to me that that's not going to make much wide. of a difference and anywhere. These things are, are, are almost everywhere. You right. know what I mean? Like if you think about it, that's not that many fish. That's not gonna be a boon for the fishing industry, right? Like a hundred no. people going out and it doesn't matter. The, the no, catch and release I, what, is going to make way more money. Like that tag is not going to help the guy who's pissed off that like five out of 10 fish he hooks on his favorite wreck gets no. taken by a Goliath. Right, that's not going to help him. It's, it's a gonna symbolic be like the, move. Yeah, and it's it's a it's it's you're going to have charter captains in specific places that really want that tag. They may never use it, but it's like I'm going to have this in case I have that client that like insists on taking this fish because it's also not going to do anything to revive you know commercial sale. No, it's a hundred fish. Right you know? right. I mean, yeah, I think. To me, it, it smacks of a symbolic move that, that it's really what it is. I think that if they can get this through, then it opens up the door to have right. more wide, widespread harvest down the line. That's right. My guess is that that's where this is going. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know enough to have an opinion on whether or not that's a responsible decision. Because, again, we don't have any data. So yeah, well, how am I supposed I mean, to? I, I don't know. It's it's still going to be a long way out because he just they want the proposals by October then that's got to all pass so we'll see I mean this the, 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 like uh, like Pittman wrote man this has been knocked down with almost an identical proposal three times so yep. I'm curious to see I'm sure we'll follow up on that one yep absolutely uh, this one the only connection I've got between that one and this one is it's also about a a fish that folks have been really trying to to recover. It is also uh, about a fish. It's about a fish. And fish <laughs> that people care about. That's that's about all I got. Uh, I'm sticking international. Okay. But for this one, I'm going to report on a mouse plague. And oh, actually, I, I want to I w- I do this right. So, Phil, Phil, can I get a little ominous music? The Great Australian Mouse Plague of 2021. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Okay, so Australia has been dealing with horrible drought the past few years, which has led to massive bushfires and all kinds of other issues. Anemic rivers and reservoirs, low oxygen levels, massive algal blooms. But last year, the weather turned. They got plenty of rain, plenty of moisture, very few fires, uh, and, and vastly improved water quality. That also led to a banner year for farmers and for mice. And when I, when I said mouse plague, I wasn't being hyperbolic. That's the technical term used when mouse populations hit a threshold of 800 to 1,000 individuals per hectare, which equals about 2.5 <laughs> acres if you speak American. It's a lot uh, of mice. It's a lot of it's mice. a lot of mice. A researcher <laughs> for the National Science Agency said that trying to count the mice in Australia right now would be like trying to count the stars in the sky. For months... Mice have been ravaging fields and causing all kinds of problems across Eastern Australia. 
The industry group New South Wales Farmers estimate agricultural losses in the hundreds of millions of dollars. The mice are a huge problem for people, but they're kind of turned into a huge boon for the fish. According mm-hmm. to numerous Australian news outlets, Murray cod anglers are reporting that the fish are taking advantage of the abundant supply of mice falling into the water, which makes sense because Murray cod eat everything, right? Oh, they, yeah. Th- they eat everything. The fish this year are in excellent condition. If you, if you look at the photos, you just see these, these huge, giant, distended bellies yep. on fish of all yep. different sizes, not just the big, mature ones, but even the smaller ones are fat. The only complaint that local anglers have is that most every fish they catch regurgitates half-digested mice, sometimes 10 or more, and the smell is, quote, not the prettiest. <laughs> this, is, this is all very welcome news for Murray Cod, which have been struggling the past few years. The droughts took a, a, a massive toll on the fish, and then when the rains finally did come in early 2020, they washed so much sediment into the rivers and dropped temperatures so rapidly that some, like the famed McCrory, experienced Severe fish kills. So mm-hmm. anglers are rejoicing about finally getting some favorable conditions. Murray cod have plenty of water, oxygen, and food. And this all sounds like a happy ending, except, you know, that, that whole mouse plague is still an issue. As the weather cools into winter, all those mice are looking for shelter in homes and buildings. They're, they're invading houses. They're invading neighborhoods. They're like laying Ugh. waste to hay and straw and crop stores. The government is under serious pressure to do something about all these mice. Researchers are working on genetic biocontrol solutions like releasing modified mice in the wild that could theoretically lead to rendering female mice infertile. But that technology isn't ready. It might help control future outbreaks, but not this one. Well, that's heavy. That's like a heavy, that's a heavy solution, man. That's some futuristic shit right there. Genetic warfare. (laughs) The solution proposed to deal with the immediate problem is a poison called bromodialone, which is currently banned. The state has applied for a permit to use the poison along the perimeter of crop fields in order to get the mouse plague under control. The problem is that this poison breaks down very slowly and lots of different animals eat mice. Dogs, pigs, poultry, owls, hawks, eagles, and Murray cod mm. are all chowing uh. down on the plentiful rodent supply. If the mice are laced with this poison, which the Minister of Agriculture referred to as napalm for mice, then it will likely <laughs> end up in the fish as well. Local fisheries groups and anglers are coming out against the decision and even threatening potential lawsuits since Murray cod are listed as a vulnerable species and subject to federal protections. There may be another option. The New South Wales Farmers Group has requested the government provide zinc phosphate instead, which also kills mice and breaks down within 24 hours of consumption. It would be less effective at getting rid of the mice, but also pose less of a threat to the food chain. I don't actually have a clear takeaway on this one. Like a mouse plague sounds awful. Like awful. I was gonna say, dude, as as a man who's I've dealt with some mice. Like, oh, I, I eventually had yeah. to call in professionals because I would get them in my basement. Like they'd run around the drop ceiling in my finished basement, and like one or two mice is fun. Like you like you set the peanut butter and you sit yeah. down there and like hear them swack, and I'm like yeah, gosh, like you know what I mean. But I hate I hate mice. I hate mice in the home. So this this if you look at some of the 
Dude, you look at some of the video. Like, well, I saw something talk, on TikTok. Oh there was like some kind of farm conveyor, just like it was like a waterfall of mice coming yeah. off the top of a conveyor directly yeah. into a a burning barrel. Like they, I, like it was, it was crazy, <laughs> dude. Like it's not funny, but it is. Like it's literally like one of those farm that like moves fruit yeah. and grain, and it was just like dumping like a Niagara Falls of mice in the in the like burning napalm. It it all so, looks awful. Like I would I would absolutely hate to be living in the midst of that. But I'm also I'm rooting for the Murray God. Like they're finally well, I love these sure. fish, and they're finally you know catching this- a break. You know. I dude, I hear you. Like you know what this harkens me back to? Remember that that story many moons ago about how they realized like shark fins or sharks could like make COVID vaccine faster? Yeah. And there was like these yeah. organizations that were like, please don't hurt the sharks. But everybody is so over the COVID that it's like, I don't care about the sharks right now. Make the vaccine. That's what's gonna. That's could easily happen here because I get it on the Murray cod. That's great. But in the overall scheme, that's like two guys fighting against neighborhood after neighborhood going, just God, please get rid of these mice. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Because that's brutal, man. And then even still, no matter how you kill them, then you still got a whole bunch of dead mice. They don't just like blow away. No, no, no. So it's just, it's like a bad, it's just a bad, bad scenario, man. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing is, is pretty nasty and and yeah, like I said, there's that little glimmer in the middle, like the Murray Cod are doing great, but we're overrun with vermin. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll root. I'll root for the cod with you, but um, if any, we yeah, have some. We don't fans. have to live there. We have some. Fa- we have some fans down under though that do, yeah. and like I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if I hear someone that are just like f the Murray Cod right now, dude. <laughs> I can't have. I can't have food in my home. Okay, they're in everything. So we feel for you guys. Uh, Phil, you can go down and, and do a mice crusade, kill some mice. Um, you can shoot a grouper in the head, maybe, <laughs> in maybe. Florida pretty soon. Uh, catch a mean mouth, ring the doorbell. We'll, uh, we'll hear from Phil, see who won this week. And then right after that, we'll talk about another bass that's kind of an oddball in fin clips. Miles. If you feel your phone blowing up right now, it's because I just sent you 2,000 push notifications letting you know that you're the winner this week. (laughs) Whether it's not letting a disheveled dock manager sleep for days on end, or deciding that the name of a state-of-the-art research boat should be Bodie McBoatface, it's truly incredible what can be accomplished when a bunch of random strangers come together on the internet with a common goal in mind. (sighs) The internet. What a magical place where I go to have only positive experiences with absolutely no detrimental effects on mental health or social skills. Did you know that there are claw game machines in Japan that you can control from anywhere in the world? You just, you pay money and you can control the claw that's in Japan and I, I'm i in Montana. Then the, after you win the stuff, they, they send it to you and I, I never have to leave my house. I, I, I can do this forever. 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 Today we're talking bass. Not America's bug-eyed obsession, the largemouth, or the less appreciated but far more interesting cousin, the smallmouth, either. No, we're going to talk about a different type of black bass. One that's a hot topic these days if you pay attention to fisheries management circles. Spotted bass or spots, range from East Texas across the Gulf Coast to the Florida Panhandle. They're also native throughout the Ohio River Basin and the Central and Lower Mississippi River Basin. 
The colloquial term spotted bass actually refers to two separate but nearly indistinguishable species, one of which is causing a whole lot of problems for their more popular relatives. But we'll get to that in a minute. In 1800, the French naturalist Bernard Germain Lacépide described and named both largemouth and smallmouth bass, though he'd never actually seen a live specimen. He did get a skin mount of a smallmouth in the male, with the dorsal fin partially broken off, though, which is how smallmouth bass became known as Micropterus dolomieu. Micropterus means small fin, and if you remember episode 27, where we asked Mandy Yurick about smallmouth history, you already know about the dolomieu part. Dolomite is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. A couple decades later, another Frenchman, Constantine Raffinesque, was the first scientist to recognize spotted bass as a separate species. But he was kind of an eccentric outcast, so his theory, though correct, was ignored for another hundred years or so. If you're wondering why French naturalists played such a big role in identifying North American fish, you got to remember the time period. The U.S. had recently uh, parted ways with the British, so the French were our closest allies, mainly because the French can't resist any opportunity to irritate the Brits. The spotted bass was officially recognized in 1927, when Michigan ichthyologist Dr. Carl Hubbs definitively proved them to be a distinct population and not just a subspecies of smallmouth. He originally named them Kentucky bass, mistakenly believing that they only existed in that state. Spotted bass kind of look like a cross between a largemouth and a smallmouth. They're colored like a largemouth, but their jaws don't extend behind their eyes. Like smallmouth, spots have a shallow notch in their dorsal fins, whereas largemouth have a deeper, more pronounced notch. Spots also have rows of relatively distinct horizontal spots below their lateral line, hence the name spotted bass. From the time of their official discovery up till the mid-1980s or so, spots weren't much of a topic of conversation. They were around, and people caught plenty of them, but they weren't all that exciting. Spots generally don't get as big as either largemouth or smallmouth, so they were something of an afterthought. But in California, fisheries biologists were experimenting with planting different strains of bass in their relatively new reservoir systems to feed on all the other fish they had introduced there. 94 spotted bass were transported from Lewis Lake in Alabama and put in Paris Lake. California Department of Fish and Game specifically chose individuals from Lewis Lake because the spotted bass there had a tendency to grow larger than other populations. Less than a decade later, Paris Lake was pumping out record spots nearly every season. That population was then used to stock other California lakes, where the fish continued to grow to impressive proportions, big enough to get bass anglers fired up. In 2017, Bullard's Bar Reservoir kicked out the current world record, which weighed in at 11 pounds, four ounces. Fisheries and bucket biologists alike thought they were onto something. Spots have a reputation as pretty indiscriminate feeders, making them willing targets even when other bass are locked up. When introduced into new systems out west, the first few generations got massive, fast. So soon, anglers started bringing spots from places that were known to produce larger specimens, primarily in Alabama and northern Georgia, to their home waters. These anglers thought they were doing their lakes and themselves a favor, bringing in larger versions of the stunted spots to beef up their bycatch. Ironically, those imports are now decimating the most hallowed sport fish in some places. In 2008, researchers discovered that Alabama spotted bass are actually a completely different fish from the originally described 
Kentucky spotted bass, though the two are identical to the naked eye. The only way to tell them apart is to count the poured scales in a fish's lateral line with a magnifying glass. If it has 70 or fewer, it's a Kentucky spot. If it has 71 or more, it's an Alabama bass. Alabama bass create problems for both smallmouth and largemouth, which Kentucky spotted bass generally don't. Steve Sammons, an Auburn fisheries scientist who specializes in black bass species, describes them this way. Alabama bass are an extremely adaptable, aggressive fish that tend to be able to outcompete or hybridize with almost any other bass species they come in contact with. Georgia, East Tennessee, and North Carolina bass fisheries have been hit particularly hard in the past decade, where some world-class smallmouth and largemouth fisheries have seen significant declines. In some North Carolina bass lakes, anglers now report catching three Alabama bass for every one largemouth or smallmouth. Bill Frazier, conservation director for the North Carolina BASS Nation, was quoted as saying, We had national class fisheries rivaled only by Texas and Florida. Now they are ruined. To make things worse, while the Alabama bass in California reservoirs grew to trophy size, it appears that in many systems where other bass are already present, introduced Alabama spots don't get much larger than Kentucky spots. This is yet another reminder that bucket biology is a bad idea. Moving fish between waters is illegal, but more importantly, it can backfire. I realize anglers who do this usually think they're doing themselves and other people a favor, but most North Carolina bass anglers aren't feeling too appreciative. The good news, however, is that spotted bass are both plentiful and tasty. And if anglers in the know see you cutting up a limit of spots at the boat ramp, they'll probably give you a nod of approval. Whereas if you do the same thing with a pile of largemouth or smallies, you might get your trailer tires slashed. So I'll tell you what, man, many people over the years have tried to lure me into the spotted bass game, and it's not that I don't want to do it. I just haven't gotten around to it, but I've been tipped off to these as like seasonal river runs for them in the South and mid-Atlantic that sound really awesome, really amazing. I also yep. get photos from people now and again, and they're like, did I just catch a largemouth crappie hybrid? <laughs> And I ask where they live, and 100% of the time, it's in spotted bass territory, and I'm like, nope, that is just the spotted bass. Yeah, and that's <laughs> applicable because we actually get a fair number of fish ID requests, and mm-hmm. I like those. I think those are oh, fun. Yeah. I'll, I have been known to go all in and like call in my friends if I don't instantly recognize them, which I, I don't, and I, will, I don't always figure it out, but I will do the research and see what I can yeah. find out because now I'm just invested. Yeah, me too. I had a listener DM me uh, a fish he caught in California in the San Francisco Delta. No clue what it was, but I spent almost 40 minutes trying to figure it out. <laughs> I took a guess. I said, I think it's this, but if I'm wrong, you know, let me know. And he actually, he eventually followed up and I, dude, I was way off. Yeah. And it was so, it was so long ago. This is months ago. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like the blue line swamp goby loach sucker. <laughs> Or something. I, I I know I know what you're talking about because he sent that to me too. It was a long time okay. ago because I okay. also ID'd it incorrectly. <laughs> and he followed up. He's like, nope, it's this. So both yep. of us lost some credibility with, with whoever that was. But more recently, I got one from uh, Nick Squelia. I think that's how he says his name. Squelia. And it turned out to be a blue head chub with these badass spikes coming oh, off yeah. his head. Oh, yeah. I saw the pictures. Yeah. 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 Also known as tubercles. Uh, and you can see that photo on my Instagram. But the point is... We really do like to help out. 
And yep. and we're like when well, we can't always help, but when we can, and then when we have time. And Joe's going to close out the show with our end of line segment this week by schooling us up on a fly that's not only fallen off of many radars, but often gets misidentified when radars do pick it back up. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The crease fly was invented by Long Island, New York-based Captain Joe Blados in the late 1990s to imitate Peanut Bunker, a primary food source of the local striped bass and bluefish. In a quote I read online, Blados once described the crease fly as a round popper that got run over by a truck. And that's actually a spot-on description. Crease flies have a short, sparse tail, usually made of a pinch of synthetic flash material or bucktail, and the body is simply a piece of craft foam that starts out sort of bullet-shaped, but is then folded over around the hook shank and glued together to create the profile of a bait fish. Add some eyes, maybe get creative with some magic markers, slather the foam in epoxy, and you've got a crease fly. But the thing is, you probably don't got a crease fly because this pattern manages to be both a staple or completely absent in fly boxes, depending on who you talk to. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool salty fly guy that fishes the Northeast, strong chance you've got a crease fly or two. In fact, it might even be as essential to you as a clouser minnow. Outside of this area, however, I feel like the issue is that people just aren't sure what to do with one, why they need it, or what it does, exactly. Matter of fact, the proper method of fishing a crease fly is often debated in fly forums, and in my opinion, there really is no right or wrong answer. Most people accept that the crease fly is designed primarily to be fished on the surface. What I think throws people off, however, is that they expect it to fish like a popper, they try to fish it like a popper, and when it doesn't work like a popper, they cut it off and tie on a popper. Because of the crease fly's lightweight, slim profile, and thin head, it doesn't throw a ton of water. And if you try to overstrip it to make it chug, you'll often find that you just pull it right out of the water. The crease fly is about creating a subtler commotion. It gurgles a bit, darts a bit, and if you finesse it, it'll even dive a bit. I've found that to make it work effectively, it's more about wrist twitching than using your whole forearm to work that sucker like a musky fly. In essence, when fished correctly, the crease fly is what I'd call a near-surface fly, constantly causing a gentle ruckus on and just below that salty film. But other keyboard commandos insist that the crease fly was always intended to be a completely subsurface pattern, and they say that what Blados wanted was for it to be fished on an intermediate sinking line that would form a belly and pull the fly under during the retrieve. Now, without asking Blados, the truth may never be found, but the real truth is the crease fly catches fish with both presentations, making it very, very versatile. It's a favorite of mine for mahi-mahi as well as stripers, particularly in wide open water with no current. And in those scenarios, I actually favor the intermediate sink tip line method and find that if you can get a crease fly under just a few inches, man, when you hit it, that thing's got a little wiggle, little shimmy, little wobble that those fish just cannot resist. Now, as a river fly, it's not as effective because it takes very little water flow to override the action you're trying to achieve with the rod and line. But I have caught a mess of large mouths on crease flies over the years, barely twitching one across the surface of a flat compound on a muggy summer evening. Now, perhaps even better than the crease fly's ability to catch fish is how simple it is to tie. Furthermore, it gives you a nice roomy canvas to flex your artistic abilities on. I actually tie them with my kids often, letting them add rainbow colors and scribbles and whatever else they want before sealing them up with epoxy. 
I've been known to add bluegill patterns and frog colors for bass, fire tiger patterns for pike, and subtle pinks and purples to mimic salty bait fish. If, however, you just totally suck ass at coloring, leave them white. They'll get trashed just as hard. So that's it for this week. Hopefully, we've not left you with questions like, should I really be fishing under the power lines? Which you should. And are spotted bass actually cooler than smallmouths? Which they might be. Or can you be metal and be into ham radio? Yes, you can. (laughs) Finally, should I buy flies from a local shop instead of off Instagram? Yes, you should. Oh, man. But while you're on Instagram, not looking for cheap flies, tag stuff to Generate Angler and Bent Podcast. We see all of it. We see it all. And if we grab something you tag for a repost, you get stickers. Also, please, please do keep all your questions, comments, and concerns coming to bent at the We love hearing from you. And I was serious about sending us questions, right? If we get enough good ones, maybe we'll build a whole show around them, around your mm-hmm. questions, or maybe we'll make them a regular segment like we originally tried to. Who knows? All things are possible. Assuming that you guys send us good questions that's that's what we need we'll also take bar nominations news items awkward photos and sale bin submissions also if you haven't jumped onto the bent spotify playlist of tunes we created just for you or actually just for us you're missing out (laughs) it's it's the best playlist ever according to 10 weirdos on the internet yeah just don't have the ween tracks playing around the children's kind of pick (laughs) kind of pick the raunchiest and most emotionally scarring ones Speaking of Raji, don't forget to erase your Ask Jeeves search history before donating your old computer to the local Catholic school. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.